0: when we ended last week Peter had told believers about the salvation we've been given and how it's been or ought to be manifested in our lives as born-again believers as born-again children of God. Here now as we begin chapter 2 he continues on with that thought that he began in verse 22 by informing them how to cultivate that love that comes from the imperishable seed they received and is now in them, or is now in you if you're a believer. From there, Peter will continue to explain how God has bestowed upon the church almost all the blessings uh, promised to Israel in the Old Testament. So as we go through this chapter, I hope that it motivates you. I hope that it moves you. I hope that it, again, encourages you to grow in love and unity through the nourishment of God's word, and that as a church, not just a a local church here, but a church as a whole, the universal church, will be encouraged to walk in harmony as God's holy people. So let's, uh, before we get into the word, let's um, ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord God, our Heavenly Father up above, we are so thankful uh, for you again for another for giving us such another beautiful, wonderful uh, Sunday morning um, that you've brought us all here together to to hear your word, to worship you, to adore you, to praise you, Lord. So now, as we um, read the words that that come from you, Lord, the living word, I pray that it just sticks with us, Lord, that it. That our, our hearts will be softened, Lord, just to receive it. That all distractions that are keeping us from sitting at your feet, will, or that are distracting our minds and our eyes and our hearts, Lord, that they just be removed right now and that we just sit and hear from you now, Lord. Lord, fill this room with your love, with your spirit. May we just. Be encouraged again by what you want to tell us this morning I pray this in jesus name amen all right so we're all going like i said we're only going to be coming the first 10 verses uh this morning is um i was originally going to plan to or planning on doing the whole chapter but man there's just too much information too much good information there that i didn't want to to just fly by so um I'm, like i usually do i'm going to be Reading a few verses, breaking it down, and then continuing on from there. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the Word of God says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow up in your salvation into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good." As in verse 13 in chapter 1, Peter begins with a therefore, and is understood by some to refer to what he had mentioned in uh, chapters, chapter 1 verses 13 through 25, and this is a possibility. Yet it seems more likely that these verses relate to what he just said in verses 22 through 25 that describe the new life that believers enjoy because of their obedience to the truth of the gospel and the sincere brotherly love that resulted from it. So as born-again believers, Peter continues to advise them to get rid of these five things, these five attitudes and habits that quenches love for one another." So these are the five things that he mentions. Malice. What is malice? This is the harboring of evil thoughts against another person and secretly hoping something bad happens to them. It's like, man, I don't like that person. I hope they get hit by a truck. You know, it's, it's that kind of thought. and. And again, what he's speaking about here is, is feeling this way or having these attitudes towards um, us as believers or your, your fellow believer in Christ. So that's what malice is. The next thing he says is deceit. And this is any form of dishonesty to include falsifying your tax returns, cheating in school, lying about yourself, and being dishonest in a, for instance, in a business dealing. This are, These are just a few examples of deceit, of deceit. Hypocrisy. This is someone pretending to be someone they're not. Examples of this is someone that is, says they're loyal in their friendship and, or in their marriage or at work or whatever it may be. And they're a totally different person. Oh, this could also be at church here. They're one way here at church. And then throughout the week, they put on a totally different person, or they become a totally different person. That is hypocrisy. You know, we as believers, we want to be the same person that we are uh, throughout the week that we are on Sundays. That's hypocrisy. Then he mentions envy this is the kind of jealousy that feels displeasure when you see or hear someone you may not like um, advancing or doing well and then he mentions slander this is the attempt to make oneself uh, cleaner by slinging mud at someone else this often starts in the form of gossip to hurt someone's reputation to basically say, hey, you know what, that person, yeah, you know, they're or that that believer, that person in church, yeah, they're, you know, they may be nice and, and friendly at church, but really secretly, I mean, and they're they're just really awful people. And that again, it isn't verified. That is just you're just making that up so you can make yourself cleaner, so that you can make yourself look better. Again, that is slander. And I think in some places you can get sued for slander and you want to be, again, careful that we're not slandering one another. Um, But anyways, these five sins, all these aim at harming other people and violate Jesus' fundamental commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, Peter exhorts them, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up in your salvation now here he's not necessarily talking about brand new baby christians rather he's saying that regardless of how long you've been a christian you should crave spiritual nourishment like the cravings of a nursing child for milk now, the reason to yearn for this spiritual nourishment is so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now, all of us, when we were kids, you may have been asked this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and, and maybe all of us gave different answers. Maybe some of you said you wanted to just be a mommy. Maybe some of you said you wanted to be president. Maybe some of you said you wanted to be, I don't know, a, in the. Army Ranger or whatever, you know, you just wanted, you had these ideas in your head. Well, you see, the ultimate goal of our spiritual growth is to one day grow up to be and look just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our aim, that's our goal as Christians. So then, the only way to really know how satisfying this spiritual nourishment is is if you've tasted it, or that you've tasted that the Lord is good. His intent here isn't to sow doubt, but to make you contemplate whether in fact you've experienced, experienced the kindness of the Lord. And he's sure that you'd say, as a believer, say, Yeah, I've tasted it, and it's good. It's really good. Let me share with you an illustration that that helped me understand these, these, these verses here that we covered. The Christian experience has been described similar to that of a piano player. When a person begins playing piano, do we expect them to play a piece by Mozart without making a mistake? No, we don't expect them to play at that level at all. We can, however, envision them playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star flawlessly. The more they commit themselves to the study and practice of the piano, the greater their ability. And they're able to play more complex pieces with increasing excellence. The spiritual life is similar. We advance from stage to stage in progression As we go forward with God, we see greater degrees of holiness, righteousness, and perfection in our lives. As long as we live, there there is further progression to make. There's always another level. There's always a better place ahead where we can see and hear God more clearly, accomplish His will more completely, and enjoy His presence more intimately. Now, before I move on to, to, to the next portion of, of this passage, I want to point out three things from these last uh, three, for, from these first three verses, that may help you know if you're truly if you've truly been converted, if conversion has probably taken place, or as has probably happened, and why probably because it, it's possible to do these things and not be saved. And I'll explain here in just a minute. Firstly, if you're able to recognize and are convicted by those attitudes and habits mentioned in verse 1, and are repentant of them, you're probably born again. Now think back before you were a Christian. Think back before you even came to know Christ. How bad did you feel whenever you acted maliciously, were deceitful, hypocritical, envious and slanderous well if you were like me it didn't affect you much because there was always a justifiable reason for feeling that way well romans 8 7 tells us why the mindset on the flesh is hostile to god because it does not submit to god's law indeed it's it is unable to do so but now that you're born again, when God's Word reveals your sin, His Spirit tells you you've messed up and that you need to repent and seek forgiveness. This is a humble, honest heart that's willing to do what the Word of God says. Jesus said in John 14:21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Secondly, if you have a strong desire for the pure milk of the word, then you're probably. Then you probably have the Holy Spirit in you. A couple things to note here now. This isn't a desire to satisfy a momentary craving or a feeling. And two, this isn't a desire to get information like you would on Google search or Wikipedia. Now, don't get me wrong yes, the Bible can be good for you in a time of need and if you need to gain knowledge. But your desire, our desire for the Word, ought to be more than this. It should be something that you long for. It should be something that you crave for on a daily and consistent basis. It should be something that you know that you can't live without. Again, it's wanting to hear it and to to be filled by the Word. Peter says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. So like natural milk from a mother's breast, God's word has all the essential nutrients that helps us to spiritually grow and stay healthy. And as we continue to grow, as we continue to mature, 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5, also tell us, tells us that the Word becomes strong meat for the mature. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it says that it becomes bread. And in Psalm 119, verse 103, it says that the Word is like honey. My point is this. If you know God's Word has life, gives life, and nourishes life you should regularly have a fierce craving for it i mean the word of god gives life it sustains life it's it's, remember what john 1 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and and that's what we're talking about not just the, the word that we hear that we read and and, and see in the Bibles, in in our Bibles, but also Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word as well, and we ought to want Him and and desire Him and crave Him every single day, every single moment. In Joshua 1.8, it says, This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night, so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. And thirdly, if you've personally tasted or you've experienced the goodness of God and have given him the glory, then you're probably born again. In some form or another, you may be familiar with the phrase, you don't know how good something is until you've tried it. Well, if you've truly ever experienced the goodness of God, there's absolutely no way you can say you tried it and you didn't like it. If this is something you've never experienced, you have to trust me when I tell you there's nothing better than the taste of God's goodness. And if you don't want to believe me, ask anybody that has read Psalms where you see David constantly talking about how good and how wonderful the word of God is. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 34:8, King David King David wrote, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? And in Psalm 107 107 verse 1, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let me tell you, once you've tasted it, you'll want more of it. And the more you consume it, the more it just begins to overflow out of your life, and 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 it'll overflow by when you start, as you start being good towards others, towards when God's goodness starts, um, starts being seen in your life towards others. It's wonderful. It's a blessing. Now, Christians who crave for spiritual nourishment should also be fashioned as part of a spiritual house. And this is what Peter will explain in these next few verses. So let's pick up where we left off. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stone, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it, is, for it stands in scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame, so honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. In these, ver- in these verses, Peter wants us as Christians, as his Christian readers, to consider their new, our new, I'm sorry, privileges in the new spiritual house we are now a part of and our new roles as new priests. Drawing from Psalm 34, which calls the faithful to draw near to the Lord, to enjoy fellowship, Peter likewise emphasizes that believers ought to come to him, ought to come to Jesus. Thinking in terms of a building and building materials, He presents the Lord figuratively as a stone. Not simply as any old, inanimate, dead stone, but, what does it say, a living stone that's eternal, powerful, and can never be crushed. Nevertheless, as incredible as it may seem, this living stone, he says, has been rejected by people. You know why? Because it didn't fit into their blueprints of life. But in God's sight, the Lord Jesus is chosen and honored. Not only the suitable, as a suitable stone, but the indispensable one and has value that is invaluable. I mean, it's just, he sees Jesus where the cornerstone as a precious and valuable stone. Peter then draws the comparison comparison between Christ as the living stone and believers as living stones. Living stones connected to him who is the source of life make up a spiritual house made up of believers in Christ which is the church now if this image of stones is hard to imagine let me use the example of our universe to paint a similar picture now i'm not a great astronomer i'm not a science teacher but i can tell you what i do know the basics of our universe we were all taught in school that earth is one of eight planets in our solar system Our solar system is one of billions of other solar systems that make up the Milky Way galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy. However, our galaxy is only one of an estimated 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Well, as believers, you and I are like planets. And Fresh Vision Church is our solar system. So, as a, so as, a, as a church, our solar system is part of a bigger galaxy of churches, which is also part of other galaxies within the universal church. So I, I hope that paints a better picture for you. I know that it kind of did for me. Maybe for you, again, it was the stones. The stones make makes sense, but I, I like that illustration. Now, despite our differences because we're all are different. I mean, there're different churches, there you know, there're different um, believers that have different doctrinal beliefs. We all belong to one spiritual house. And in this house there's a unity that transcends all local churches and all denominations. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. This doesn't mean that doctrinal and denominational distinctives are wrong because each local church must be fully persuaded by the Spirit. But it does mean we must not permit our differences to destroy the spiritual unity we have in Christ. We ought to be mature enough to disagree without any sense of becoming disagreeable. Unfortunately, what happens is Christians hinder the building of the church because they're following the wrong plans. If all of us would follow God's blueprint in his word, we would be able to work together without discord and build his church for his glory. Now, the figure quickly changes from a spiritual house to the holy priesthood that functions in connection with the house. As believers, we're not only uh, living building blocks in a spiritual house, we're being built to be a holy priesthood in that house as well. Now Peter wasn't thinking mainly of each individual functioning as priests before God. The focus here is on the church corporately, as God set apart priesthood in which he emphasizes, well, in which the emphasis is on believers functioning as priests. So rather than, again, seeing ourselves as individual priests, we need to see ourselves as the community of priests. And as holy priests, guess what? We have direct access to the holiest of all places, God's throne room by virtue of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There, there in that throne room, we offer spiritual sacrifices with our bodies, our worship and our praise, our good works and our possessions. And yes, this even means our pocketbooks. When we do this with a pure heart, these sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, it's only through Jesus Christ, our mediator, that we can approach God in the first place. And it is He, and it is only He, who can make our offering acceptable to God. And Peter then cites several passages using the stone metaphor to point out that those who refuse to believe will find this stone as an instrument of judgment. Now, some may say that the end of verse 8, where it says they were destined for this, seems to imply that unbelievers were destined to disobey the word. So my question is, is this what this means no not at all this verse is telling us that those who willfully disobey the word are destined to stumble in my opinion the new living translation new living translation puts it better they stumble because they do not obey God's word and so they meet the fate that was planned for them put simply God has decreed that all those who refuse to bow to Jesus will stumble. And if a person continues in that unbelief, then they are appointed to stumble. Therefore, what this verse and many others like it in the Bible tell us is that all of us have a choice. We all have a decision to make. Accept Christ. Or not accept it, or not accept them. Yet, whatever decision and choice we make, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. Well, let's now uh, move on and read the last two verses that we're going to be covering this morning. Getting in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Say so, so that you may proclaim the praises. So, you, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here, Peter now turns again to our privileges as believers. Unlike those who rejected God, you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. In Exodus 19:5 through 6, God promised that these very privileges or God promised these very privileges to the nation of Israel if if they would obey him. And there it says, "Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples." although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. But because of their stubborn unbelief, Israel failed to realize the promise of God and the nation forfeited its place as God's own people. Therefore, right now, in this present age, the church temporarily occupies the favored place that Israel lost through disobedience and the rejection of the Messiah the rejection of Jesus Christ Paul elaborates on this more in Romans chapter 9 through 11 to Romans chapter 9 10-11 but i want to point out something he said in verses 11, in chapter 11 verses 25 through 31 that explains what Israel re- Israel's rejection means to us. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Regarding the gospel, they're enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they're loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling Are irrevocable as you once disobeyed God but now have received mercy through the through their disobedience so now uh, yes through their disobedience so they too have now disobeyed resulting in mercy to you so that they may also now receive mercy thus as a church, believers today are a chosen race, meaning a heavenly people with a divine parentage and spiritual resemblance. You know, when that, you have that baby, immediately people begin to tell you, oh, it looks like mom, it looks like dad. And as that kid continues to grow, you, you begin to see the similarities. Well, that's what we are, you know, we, where as we grow, we, you know, we start to resemble more and more our, our Father in heaven, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You, it says, are also a role of priesthood. We're in addition to offering spiritual sacrifices, because if you remember, back in the beginning, it says that we were uh, holy priests. Now here it says we're royal royal priesthood. Where in addition, again, to offering spiritual sacrifice as holy priest, you are also proclaiming the excellencies of God as a royal one. Peter adds, believers are a holy nation. As I mentioned, originally it was God's intention that Israel should be a nation distinguished by holiness. But because they followed in the sinful practices of their Gentile neighbors, they've been set aside temporarily. And the church is now God's holy nation. Now again, I'm not speaking here of replacement theology. And if you want to to, to know more about that, I would would encourage you to, to look that up. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about that we've replaced Israel. I'm just saying that for now, right now that we live in the church age, we are God's holy nation. And then once we're removed, once we get raptured, once we're with the Lord in heaven, then I believe, what I read in the scriptures is that the nation of Israel will come around. They will finally believe, they will finally accept that Jesus was their Messiah. And then all the promises will be finally fulfilled. But for now, as I mentioned, we are a chosen, the chosen race, the, the, the a new people, a holy nation. Finally, he says, as Christians, We are a people for his or God's own possession, meaning you belong to him in a unique way and are of special value to him. Since this is who we are now, you and I should proclaim the praises of the one who called us. Now some translations here may say or read excellencies, And and this refers to God's virtues and eminent qualities which are to be reflected through believers. So his point is that individually and as a church, we're expected to proclaim the glory of God by praising Him through our worship and when we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Now, why should we do this? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 9, because he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just like when God spoke light, and uh, that light shone from darkness in Genesis chapter 1, he shined his light in you when you believed in Jesus and were born again. In verse 10, Peter concludes this section with the ideas and words borrowed from Hosea chapters 1 and 2, which reveal fuller aspects of our great benefits. In Hosea, Israel is repudiated as God's people because of their sin, but God pledges to have mercy on them and form them again as his people. So, in a similar way, as unbelievers, you and I were once not a people and had not received mercy, thus making us guilty and under condemnation for our sins. But now, now as born-again Christians, we've been granted the highest privilege in the universe. We are God's people, and we have received mercy. Not because we earned it or because we deserved it, but because of God's grace, love, and mercy. Now, before I end this message and before I move on to communion, I want to circle back around and quickly summarize what I will be covered here in these first 10 verses. Individually and as a church body, if you want to stand firm in a hostile world, we must stand firm in love and unity. In or, and in order to do this, number one, we must walk in harmony with one another, by getting rid of those sinful attitudes and behaviors that will rip this church apart. If we want to grow spiritually, we must never stop craving the nourishment that comes from the Word of God. We must view ourselves as living stones of a spiritual house with Jesus as the chief cornerstone that binds us together. We must also see ourselves as priests together, serving the same high priest and offering sacrifices in this spiritual temple. And finally, we must realize and never forget that we are, that we are um we must never forget who and what we are and the special privileges we now have as born again believers. Warren Wiersbe summarized it well when he wrote, we belong to one family of God and share the same divine nature. We are living stones in one building and priests serving in one temple. We are citizens of the same heavenly homeland. It is Jesus Christ who is the source and center of this unity. If we center our attention and affections on him, we will walk and work together. If we focus on ourselves, we will only cause division. So, to anyone again listening and watching this message, and you've never tasted how good the Lord is—the Lord is—you've never tasted that the Lord is good, and would like to. I, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. You see, regardless of your background, regardless of of where you were born, under regardless of what religion you were a part of or what denomination you grew up in or who or what you've done, God is calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you can enjoy the benefits of being his child. And if you're ready, if that's what you want and you're ready to do that, you're ready to open up the door to your heart to jesus christ in a moment i'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that but again you have to understand your condition the truth is that you're a sinner everybody has sinned no one is righteous no one is good yeah we can get do good deeds but that's still not enough In God's eyes, every every single good deed doesn't compare to the sin that we've committed against them. If you were to put all your good deeds, if you had a scale and you put all your good deeds um, on one side and your sin, even if it was one or two sins in your life, that sin will always outweigh every single good deed you've ever done. So you have to recognize, you have to know you're a sinner. Second thing you have to do is humble yourself. Humble yourself and know, and be like, I, I, I know, I know that I'm a sinner and I need help. I realize, I understand, the Bible says that if I don't do something about it, if something isn't done, I'm, I'm condemned, I'm guilty. And what happens to guilty people? They go to jail. And and that's just in our world sense, but spiritually, eternally, when you're guilty of something, if you're guilty of sin, you die in that sin, your ultimate destination is going to be eternal separation from the Lord. And that's what the Bible describes as, as, as hell. So understanding that, believing Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus loved you so much that He didn't want to leave you in that condition. He didn't want to leave you there and it was like, and it's like, man, I, I love Him too much. I don't want Him or her to die in that sin. So I'm going to send my Son. I'm going to send my Son to die for you. My, my perfect and sinless Son to come and die for you, so that you know your sins will be placed upon him. And that's what happened. And three days later he rose, and now he's sitting up in heaven at the right hand of God. But again, come to him. That's all he wants you to do is just come to him. Realize, open open the door to your heart, realize The real situation and believe in Him. And if you're ready to do it, that's what you want to do. With all sincerity, just pray this prayer Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. So I come before the cross right now, humbly and broken, and and ask for forgiveness. Forgive me for my sins. Wipe me clean. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe that you sent him to die for me. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I receive your forgiveness I accept your forgiveness. So fill me now with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give me the strength that I need to to walk according to your ways, to read your word and understand it, Lord. Open my eyes, open my ears, open my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that, you know, again, let me be the first to to tell you, to welcome you into God's family. Don't hesitate to call. Let us know and find out how you, and, and so you can find out how you can continue to grow as a believer. Let's close this service with a word of prayer. Lord, your word is so good and so wonderful. It teaches us so many things. It cuts to the heart, Lord. It, 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 it molds us and shapes us, Lord. And we thank you for that. Even though sometimes it's hard and we Sometimes resist, because we like it our way. Lord, I pray you just continually reveal to us, show us. Break those things that need to be broken in our lives. Soften our hearts, Lord. Show us where we're wrong, where our stubbornness is. We want to become more like Jesus. So help us, Lord. Empower us. Lord, as a church, may we love you with all our hearts, Lord. May we be united together. May we walk in harmony with one another, Lord. Lord. Despite our differences, despite our quirks that maybe sometimes that we find annoying, Lord. I ask that, again, that we just get along, Lord. That we see even as, as small as this church is, that we're part of a greater church, Lord. And just because we have a maybe a handful of people, Lord, that that we're insignificant in no, Lord. You see us just as important as those mega churches that are out there. Thank you for what you've done and who we are now, Lord, what we are. Holy priest, royal priests, a holy nation, a chosen race, a people or your own possession, Lord. Thank you that you've made us that through your Son, Jesus Christ we go back to to, to these words in Scripture and reread them, have a hunger for them, Lord. Have a hunger for Your entire Word. Not just the parts we like, but all of it, Lord. Bless everyone's weak. Lord, keep them safe. All those family members that are sick, heal them, Lord. Strengthen them. May your will be done. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.